There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts. This is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello and welcome once more to Dark Unicorn in Conversation. My guests today are an award-winning creative partnership in the world of independent cinema, crafting acclaimed work on tiny budgets that has attracted big interest. All three of us met as undergraduates in Wales in the early 2000s, and while life and work took us all in different directions, these two went on to forge a strong and dynamic working relationship, the first peak of which came with the release of their inaugural feature, the psychological horror picture Lost Creek, which came out to audiences between 2016 and 17, picking up awards and nominations at a panoply of indie film festivals and securing international distribution, including a deal for the UK market with Amazon Prime. They are screenwriter Dan John Witherall and writer-director Colin Adams-Toomey, and we kicked off with me asking about whether creativity had a part to play in their early lives. Did you both grow up surrounded by creativity? Oh, that's an interesting question. No. (laughs) (laughs) but a simple answer (laughs) i have no other way to answer that absolutely not no no not at all i would say yes and no i would say um my mother yes uh she ran the she's a school teacher and she ran the drama program at the she was a teacher at the school where i went although she never was my teacher and she ran the drama program at the school, and I got involved in it very early on. And um, so that kind of so theater was around for me a lot as a kid. She encouraged me to get involved in community theater as a kid, and and that in high school productions and things like that. So I would say yes from there. Um, and she also encouraged um, a lot of uh, reading. She she herself is pretty well read. So I I would say from that area yes um though neither of my parents are writers or or artists really for me it was teachers i think so like um growing up and watching movies was definitely like uh, escapism and i think i was about eight or nine maybe when i realized that someone writes these films before they get filmed they don't just sort of magically appear um 
And as soon as I realized that, I was like, fuck, that's what I want to do. That's all I want to do. Um, and I had some good teachers along the way who encouraged um, me to read things that did influence me and, and spark that, you know, continue to sort of spark that. Um, but otherwise, no, like as a child, I really, I have no, there was no moment for me where I was like, that's it, you know, I, I, there was nothing like that for me. I was very quick to say that I didn't grow up in a creative household, which I stand by actually, because um, it got a laugh and it is true. Um, but growing up in my house, my parents were, and still are, avid readers. It was very normal for me growing up to see someone with a book in their hands. And only as I got older did I realize how kind of rare that is actually. And, um, I kind of took it for granted, I guess, because reading was the norm in my house, and it certainly rubbed off on my sister before it did me. Um, she always had those, uh, like, Goosebumps, is it Goosebumps books, or like Point Horror books? She always had those in her hand. Um, and uh, so, you know, the appreciation for reading and things like that was very important. And yes, I, I had a, a good teacher later on who pushed me towards the kind of books that really resonated with me, but... Um, it was it was good to grow up thinking that having a book in your hand was normal. Having a book on the go was normal. I mean, my, my mother hoovers books. She reads like a book a day. She can quite easily do that. And um, I always talk about Jurassic Park. I always talk about that every time I'm asked. Um, but my mother, I remember turning to me one day and saying, that's based on a book, you know, like you can read the book of that. So, you know, reading the book of Jurassic Park also afterwards was a, a big thing. And, I, and I'm sure there was, that was mostly my mother trying to get me into reading, but I'm definitely sure as well, there was an element of her thinking, do you know what, if he's reading, then he ain't talking, because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I must have fucking driven there mad after I saw Jurassic Park, because I must have just spoke about it constantly, all the time. Um, so there was that, and also, another thing that my parents did, which, again, as a child, you take for granted, and it's only when you're older, that you realize that that's so important, um, is that they raised me and my sister to be so independent. And that's a practical tool, and that's a lot more valuable, I think, than a creative tool or an artsy upbringing. Having a practical tool like independence, um, it really does arm you to take all the knocks, and there are so many as a writer. Um, you know all the all the things that knock you back and if you didn't have that sort of steel that would make you think well i'm just gonna give up and you know fuck this it's not working or whatever but because i was raised like i was with from my parents uh, to be so independent and to just keep getting up and keep carrying on that is we weren't an artsy family but that's so much more valuable to me um and the appreciation for creativity was there uh, my mother um, told me once that when she was a teenager, she used to write things down. She used to chuck things, you know, on a pad and then put them in a drawer. And, and sadly, you know, she just didn't go back to them. Uh, and my father is a massive music fan. And actually, when he was younger, um, one of his jobs was a roadie, essentially. He got the chance to, like, you know, travel all around with some of the biggest acts in the world and erecting their stages for them and things like that. So... Maybe not direct creativity, but there was always a massive appreciation for it. And, and also, you know, the, 
the practical tools. I wouldn't go back and, and pick a creative upbringing over the upbringing that I had because the upbringing that I had is obviously got me to where I am now and that's, that's where I want to be. So, um, so yeah, maybe not artsy, but yeah, like it was a, it was a good upbringing, you know. I would double down on what Dan said, actually. Um, I think he's really right. The, the idea of watching films and uh, the love of, of watching films and slowly becoming aware that that, that that mode of storytelling was something that you could actually do for a living uh, was also really important to me. I have, I have a lot of really important memories. And often they're like, they're weirdly solitary. Occasionally it would be a film that you watched with other people, but more often than not, it was a film that you watched by yourself Mm, that yeah, you yeah. kind of immersed in completely by yourself and that was a hugely important thing absolutely do you remember yours Colin do you remember yours that you like you you um stumbled upon on tv or whatever and you were like oh this is like uh, you know a game changer for me I think when if we're talking really really young yeah I would say the first film that I really uh remember not only being immersed in in the kind of the world and the adventure but also being aware that it was cinematic as opposed to like a film you watch when you're a kid and you're like, Oh, that's a great adventure. But you don't really think of it as a film. You know, you know what I mean? You just think of it as an amazing experience. The first time I had a, an experience with a film that I enjoyed the adventure, but also really understood that it was a film and that it was a cinematic experience probably was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, oh, watching oh, it as a kid. Yeah. Um, for me, obviously the cinema, it was, it was Jurassic Park. But um, for me, the, the film that, I stumbled upon on my TV and I like I watched, I must have watched like some of it and I ran downstairs uh, to my mother and I was like, oh, this film is on, it's amazing. Um, it was Stand By Me. Ah, my mother one. always tells this story about when she got me the VHS for Christmas and I opened it and I like almost cried. Like I didn't open another gift that day. I just put it straight in and just <laughs> watched it. And I, wa I kept watching it. Um, until the VHS just died. And it was one of those things that I would put on every single night to like go to sleep to. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I actually haven't watched it in years because I kind of feel watched like too I, much. Yeah, I watched the shit out of that film. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking separately here, I mean, it's not that you have been speaking, you know, in chorus so far, but uh, can you remember roughly what your first attempts were at, at writing for your own enjoyment oh yeah um, i i know but you go first then okay so when i was um when i was 14 i wrote a short story about coming out as gay and i submitted it in school and my teacher came to me and said would you be okay if i read this out loud to the class and i said yes so that's i mean i'd come out like to my friends earlier, I came out quite early to like my close friends um, when I was 13, but that was when the school knew. And um, I, I, it was a great experience looking back because it all happened on my own terms and it, in my own voice. So that was, you know, a really good experience looking back. I think that's helped um, shape me and a lot of the confidence I have and uh, all those things. And also, um, I, so I continued to write like short fiction until I was 17 and I, um, I wrote a novel. Um, I wrote a novel and it is so shite. But occasionally, <laughs> you know, occasionally I will try and read 
uh, a bit of it as a tie-in, just for the giggles, I think. But I can't get past the paragraph. You know? <laughs> Is that the thing that you whipped out of my hands in college before I could read it? Um, no, I don't think so because I was always quite proud of it, especially when okay. we were like, you know, when we were like eighteen years old. I was kind of proud of this, so I don't think I did. No, I have a very strong memory in the house that we all shared of picking something up that was like on on the landing or something. And be like, oh, what's this? And before I could read a word, it was out of my hands, and you were like, you will never read that. That was probably my Twilight fan fiction. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't ever do that. I couldn't even let that sentence linger in the air. Possibly the thing that Dan and I were collaborating on, which was a completely um, fantastical piece of work about, you know, conspiracy to murder a house made from another country. <laughs> Um, Very I think I do somewhere have in my possession, I don't know quite where it is, it's in a box somewhere, but I think I have what is probably the only hard-backed bound copy of that novel of yours. Oh, yeah, it will be Ooh. definitely the only copy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't try and get an agent through that one. I didn't <laughs> Um, so for me, actually, I think it's interesting to hear you say that, Dan. Your, your story is, uh, feels much more profound than mine in some ways. Uh, because Dan came to writing a lot, uh, a lot earlier than I did. Uh, I, you know, I went to school for acting, and for a long time, I, I, I knew I wanted to do something. I, I wanted to tell stories in some way. And uh, I was, I'd always known that I was, not to like toot my own horn, but beep beep. I, I knew that um, I was good at writing insofar as that like, I, I did well on school papers and things like that, right? But I never uh, remembered enjoying writing. I was never a kid that like kept a journal or anything like that. And writing felt like a chore, mostly because it was stuff for school. Mm. Um, so I pursued, so I figured, okay, I'll be an actor. That's how I'll do this. And I did that for a long time. I ended up in New York and- Beep, beep again. Uh, and, beep, beep, clown. I ended up in New York, but no, but you know, was doing, okay as an actor but you know poor and not doing that that great and a lot one of the things that circulates around a lot uh with actors who are between jobs is the idea of like if you can't find work make work mm -hmm. and uh so a friend of mine had started to try to write a play and i thought oh that's an interesting idea and uh i had found myself over the years already uh taking mon you know monologues that i was using for auditions uh, adapting them and adjusting them myself to make them fit the situation of the audition better and finding that I had been complimented on that and without them knowing that that had been something that I had done. So I thought, well, maybe I can do this. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a play when I was in my early twenties and like Dan's novel, it is terrible. Um, no one, Dan has seen it. I don't think anybody else has ever seen it. Um, and nobody ever will. It's sitting in a hard drive and I haven't accessed it in, I don't know, 12 years. But the experience that was important with it was it proved to me that I, it was something, I finished it, which was important. The idea of, I, I didn't abandon it halfway through. I actually, it was, I think it was, it wasn't huge, it was like 80 pages long. Mm -hmm. And I got to the end of it, which was an important moment for me to learn. And I also learned that I liked it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I actually, I realized that for the first time I actually enjoyed writing. I couldn't stop writing. I wanted to write all the time. I was working on it you know, in spare time at, at like crappy jobs that I was working in New York. I remember like writing, scribbling things down as I was on the subway. And I'd never had that experience with writing before where I was so interested in it 
that I, I couldn't stop. And that was hugely important for me because that made me realize, and, and very quickly after that, I would say, I would say within a year or so of having written that play, I found myself transitioning further away from acting and into writing and directing instead. And realizing very quickly that that was what was much more satisfying for me, yeah. personally. And I think that's the thing, like, I'll never get rid of my novel, I may never read it again, but I'll never get rid of it, I'll never delete it because this is the first long form thing that I ever finished. And I think yeah. that's what's important for a lot of people who, you know, uh, uh, like, younger or not, however late you come into writing, it's that first piece that you've finished. I mean, it's gonna be dog shit, of course it is, you know, it's your first thing, like, but, it's the fact that you finished it. That's the, you know, that's the important thing. And, and keeping hold of that is like a little, you know, like a little memory back. It's yeah, like, I agree. It's a big motivator, you know, finishing something is a big motivator. I would agree with it. I would say that that's one of the most, most important things. Cause I think there are so many people out there who start writing, yeah. but there aren't that many people out there who finish writing. You know, there are lots of people who start a screenplay or start a novel or start whatever and have this, you know, dream of doing something but they the sim and even if even if you know so in the case of that play it's never seen the light of day and never will but the fact that you can hold it afterwards and say i actually did you know I, this came from yeah. me and this was nothing to begin with it's just an idea that i had and i have made it manifest into something mm. is a hugely important step because it, i think that's the beginning and if you can do it once and you, and you realize that it's possible to do, and it's not the kind of thing that's gonna last for 400 years and you're gonna finish it halfway through and then never look at it again. If you can actually get to the end of it, it like Dan says, it's a huge motivator. It's, it's yeah. this yeah. idea that, oh, well, the, next time it'll be better, and maybe next time I can show it to somebody, and then maybe after that I can actually show this to somebody who might pay me, and then so forth. Like, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a building process. Yeah. I mean, think, I think for me, it was as simple as realizing that if I can finish one, I can finish the next one. Yeah. We all encountered one another at university in Wales and Colm, I think I encountered you first. In fact, I'm, I'm Might be true. definitely did. Yeah. Because at some point I went, particularly when you're both slightly further down in higher profile, I, I intend to take credit for introducing you to each other, whether that's true or false. Um, could be. <laughs> actually, I think you're, Patty, I think you're right. I, I think I might be, actually. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. You may well be, because I remember my first experience of college. Which I'm not we did not like each other at first. I'm not at all. No. I'm not, not going to go into my first experience of Colin, um, but I don't remember meeting you. Like, I don't remember, like, you know, this is Colin, this is Dan, shake hands, blah, blah, blah. No, I don't I remember really, that either. Yeah, I only really remember my first experience of which I'm not, again, I'm not. <laughs> which, and, and that's very kind of you, Dan. Thank you. I'd forgotten it wasn't, a, it wasn't an immediate love affair, was it? As the, oh, no. Um, I remember the three of us being in your flat, Dan, in, mm. in Bridge Street in second year. Um, but, um, you know, you, Dan, were there as your sort of local to Wales student. I was there as sort of, you know, Irish when he's ended up there studying drama. Colin... I mean, you have the, the marvellous thing of being an American who has moved to Wales to study Irish under <laughs> Yeah. And, but the eccentricity of Aberystwyth... What the hell is he doing here? <laughs> was, was funny enough, my first thought. Is he working for the CIA? Is this a cover? 
I suppose Aberystwyth's own sort of eccentricity is its own muse, but at what mm. point did the two of you think that, or imagine that perhaps the future might involve you forming some sort of creative partnership? I have my own memory of this, and then Dan, I would like to see what, how yours matches up. I, oh, to no. me, I okay. think I can pinpoint a couple of moments that for me were turning points in the idea of, you know, so we became friends and, and best friends while we were in Aberystwyth. Were we, says Dan, were no, we? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not pulling that face, I'm pulling a face of like, who says best friends? <laughs> <laughs> we best were best friends. buds. BFF. We have those necklaces. We have the Beast Eye F, you know, the broken heart necklaces. Uh, yeah, 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 we do. Um, but um, I'm not wearing mine. But we no, do. I'm not either. I lost mine years ago. <laughs> Mine's just getting cleaned. <laughs> um, so we were friends for years and years and years. And then obviously I left the UK after college and Dan and I maintained our friendship. I can point to a couple of moments that I think were really important uh, in terms of the idea of us working together. Uh, one of which was when I was living in New York. And this was around that time that I was really believing that the, uh, I didn't want to be um, an actor so much anymore as I wanted to be a writer and, and produce work that way. Do you think that would be due to your Rock of Ages experience? I mean, that was really profound. I think you might have to tell us about your Rock of Ages. I was, <laughs> I was an extra on the Rock of Ages and I don't want to like... Colin was an extra on a lot of things. I was. That was, that was the way I made money in New York. I was an extra on The Good Wife. I was an extra on Men in Black 3. I was an extra on Person of Interest. And I was an extra on uh, um, uh, Rock of Ages. Or that's what it's called, right? The, the, the jukebox musical. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Think so um, There's a good chance, guys, that you've seen Colin. You've seen Colin. For it's possible. I'm very visible in the Good Wife episode I discovered. Somebody like sent me something years ago. Is this that you? Was, that, was yeah. the, that was what the review said. <laughs> Adam's, Adam's Toomey is very visible in his role. <laughs> <laughs> um, while I was there, and I don't want to like cast aspersions on, you know, influential A-list actors, but Tom Cruise is in that film. And the scene that I was an extra in was pretty arduous. It was like towards the end of the film and it's like when all the characters come together and this, they're all, we're all singing, don't stop believing. And I'm like a groupie in the crowd, right? And we start working at maybe 4 a.m. and we're not finished until about, I wanna say midnight, 1 a.m. And because it's, you know, it's huge and they have to reset like massive set pieces in between takes. Yeah. And by the end, we're like, can we please stop believing now? Can we go home and sleep? And we're done. And the AD has, is like, picks up the megaphone to be like, okay, that's a wrap. And Tom Cruise, who has been working to his credit, like a crazy person the entire time. He's very professional and very, like working very hard. Yeah. Prances up yeah. to the AD and like whispers something in the AD's ear. And the AD, I watched the AD kind of look at Tom Cruise like, and then like look back at us and is like, okay guys, we're not quite done because Tom Cruise feels like you guys have all worked really hard and he wants to do something for you. And we're like, okay, what is he going to do? And so he plays a musician in the film. And obviously during most of the takes, they're running a soundtrack and the, like, the instruments aren't plugged in and nobody's singing, right? But Tom Cruise apparently took like six months of vocal training for this film. Um, so he was singing 
you know, he could sing. And the musicians obviously on stage were real musicians. So when they played the instruments, they looked like they were playing for real. So he plugged everybody's instruments in and he did an impromptu rendition of Pour Some Sugar On Me for all of us. And he had like nine bottles of champagne, which God knows where he got them. And he would pick them up and like spray them over us. And, we, and I was like, yeah, this feels like some sort of weird dream I'm having. And, John <laughs> was in it and he sprayed us with champagne. I don't know if it was sexual or what, but I don't know. <laughs> That was my experience. I, I feel like <laughs> if you're never too far away from nine bottles of champagne. I, <laughs> that's probably true. He's in his rider. Champagne at the end of 2020. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I can. So the two points that I can pinpoint were of working with Dan for real, uh, kind of were t like two, and they're two kind of distinct moments, and they're different. The mm. first one, we, so I was living in New York, and Dan and I at that time had a mutual friend. So we had at the time decided that we were going to try to write a television pilot. And uh, what I found was collaborate. So we all tried to collaborate on this together and it went as far as it did and then it didn't get produced. But it was again, a, an important stepping moment. It was our first time that we met with somebody big in, in terms of like getting it produced, ultimately not picked up, but you know, so goes life. But what I found in that moment was oh, you can't just collaborate with just anybody. Because working with as nice a guy as he is, was impossible. We, our, our tastes, the way that we worked, the way that we, the things that we wanted to happen, we just clashed constantly. Um, and we had picked, we had originally picked an idea that Dan had had, and then very quickly decided the idea was fantastic, but it was not the idea to, as unknowns to, to try to get in the door with, because it was too complicated. Yeah. So yeah. I pitched a second idea, and in contrast to how difficult it had been to work with Dan came and visited New York. Uh, we went to a bar. I was like, Dan, I think I've got another idea. By the time we left that bar, we had fleshed out the entire series. And uh, I had noticed that we were just in perfect synchronicity almost the entire time. Does that mean that Dan and I don't argue when we work? Of course not. But our, our, in general, I just realized, oh, this is a person that I can actually work with and I like working with. And I feel like my ideas are better with him his input than they would be on their own. The second moment that I remember very clearly was working on Lost Creek. And I remember sitting down and Dan had, uh, I had taken the lead on that script and I wrote, I wrote it, but Dan was an essential editor on that script. And he suggested some changes on it that frankly saved the film, in, in my opinion. He, he, I, the ending wasn't working and he gave me some suggestions that turned everything around for me. And that, again, that moment was like, oh my God, this, without Dan, this would have been, not so good. And Dan and I at that moment decided no matter who takes the lead on what script, and we collaborate very closely on everything, but generally one of us has an idea. Whoever had that idea does the legwork on the script and the other one edits and vice versa. But we, I remember sitting with Dan and saying, we're going to, from now on, I, I want to put your name on Lost Creek and I want to do that with everything from now on. And I want us to share credit on whatever, everything we do. And I want us to work together to make our career work. And I remember it was like kind of an act of faith in that way of being like, I'm like, we're going to, we're going to connect here and we're going to sign each other's things. And we're going to, we're going to, we're, we're going to push each other together. And that moment was very important for me because it felt like, it, it felt like a moment of really kind of saying, this is it. This is the beginning. This is this from now on the two of us, and that's not to say we, we can't work on things on the side on our own or, you know, it's not like that, but it, yeah. but that moment yeah. of saying, this is it. 
the two of us are going to combine our creative forces and we're going to we're going to share this work together and we're going to push our push each other together and we're going to be a package deal was hugely important for me so i would point to those two moments um similar for me i would say um so i i had been writing i was working on a, a television pilot in cardiff where i was living at the time and um colin and i uh we met up in new york where colin was living and uh, Again, similar. So we started up with uh, this third party working on a, a television show, and it, it was um, it was a little bit difficult. And that night um, in the bar definitely does come to mind, where we um, just uh, I guess like I don't want to use the word vibed. <laughs> we vibed <laughs> together. We were just vibing at one word. Um, <laughs> and after that, pretty much everything. Like um, I remember. I do distinctly remember Colin, me, Colin sending me like the first draft or like the first treatment of Lost Creek and being like, oh, I think together we can do stuff here, definitely. Um, and since then, uh, definitely Lost Creek cemented everything, Yeah, I would say. I, I would agree. I think, I think once we went through that process together of actually producing a work that got made and distributed, yeah. I think that was also hugely important for both of us. That, like, Again, in the same way that like when you complete your first work and you're like, oh, I can do this, completing a film that got made and went out into the world with somebody and realizing that that process wasn't a nightmare, that working with yeah, Dan yeah. was actually really fun and, and enjoyable and creatively fulfilling and it got made was, uh, well, I think I, that was the I, point. I just think we remember um, that coming almost full circle when we sat down at the New York screening of Lost Creek. And I remember looking at you when we were watching it and looking at you, I don't think I've ever told you this, um, but you were watching the movie with such like pride in your eyes. And that like filled me with such, I was so proud of you. And I think it was just watching that movie together, um, like, you know, in a, in a packed out cinema in New York, um, made me think, do you know what? even if this is it and we never get anything like this again i'm so glad that i got to do this with my best friend and yeah. also thinking i'm so glad of this this feeling that we we could not have done this without each other we could not have absolutely have ended up in this room in this scenario without doing it together and that that i think um brought that sort of moment full circle for me. I would agree, absolutely. Yeah. You've been talking about Lost Creek and that hit UK screens um, in 2017 and made on a, on a budget of uh, about $30,000. It has a way of, of drawing one in as a film and it's sort of, even though it's, it's not a flashy film, it has a sort of simultaneous feeling of... of there being sort of a sort of premium concept, but also quite homespun. It's quite easy to feel invested mm. in it. Can you just, you know, talk us through the life story of that project? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think, I mean, Colin can tell you more about it because I, w I was only there for like a couple of days of filming. Um, but I think from like the genesis of it to realizing we, we work, uh, we found out that we work well within restrictions and it, it definitely made us um, economic writers, um, which yeah. is something that I think that we've, <coughs> I mean, 
now it's a valuable are, lesson. Yeah, now we are being sort of geared more towards studio writing. Um, so that's something that that's another learning curve. But um, definitely, you know, when we started out um, doing this film and Colin, you know, was sort of doing the budget and things like that, we realized we had to definitely work within massive limitations. Um, I, and that usually means with independent film that everything has to be seriously character based because, yeah. you know, other, otherwise you're looking at um, more flashy kind of visuals. So I think, um, and also, I mean, Colin can tell you a little bit more about the genesis of, of, of his idea and, and things like that. Well, um, I, I, I think some of the, the inspirations for the film, for me, actually kind of came <clears throat> from that realm anyway. Um, I, I would say uh, the original idea kind of came, I've always loved ha Halloween and I've also loved kind of macabre, the macabre. And uh, I remember sitting down uh, years ago, kind of trying to figure out, well, what about it, what about it do I love? Why, why do I conflate these two things and why do I love them so much? And I think it, it's because it's, I can't think of a, a, a holiday besides Halloween that's more of a more pure expression of childhood imagination and the world that children live in because it's not always fun. It's not always happy. It's often scary. It's often, you know, if you really truly ha believe hard in things, you can believe in wonderful things, but you also believe in monsters. Mm -hmm. And it's also a way for kids to process and make sense of traumatic things that are actually happening to them. Um, and not necessarily deeply traumatic, it can be as uh, simple as the pains of growing up and realizing that the world that you lived in as a child doesn't last forever. It seems like it's going to when you're a kid, but it doesn't. Um, so I think all of those ideas kind of mushed around and I eventually ended up with this, with this story that I wanted to tell that, that reflected that, that kind of, that idea of what it, what it's like to grow up and what it's like to be a child and what it's like to have that world of imagination that you live in that can be uh, an escape, but it can also be your own, your own worst enemy. Yeah. And yeah. so, and I, and I also, I remember very clearly having this, just this image in my mind of, of wanting to write these two characters, this boy and a girl who were best friends, one of whom was something was weird and ended up, spoiler alert, being, being a ghost. Um, but so from there, once we, I, and so I would say films, the kind of films that, uh, inspired Lost Creek would be, um, uh, what's his name? M Michelson. Uh, the myth of the American sleepover is the film that I'm thinking of. Oh, um, yeah. is it Robert yeah. Michelson? I think it's Robert David. Mitchell. Robert David Mitchell. That's it. Um, and again, tiny budget film filmed it in his, in his back in his, childhood neighborhood and uh, the way that he was able to do that, it was really, it's really an enchanting film. And I wanted to capture something like that. I wanted to capture something where it was really solely from the, chil the children's perspective and what, what a world would look like when everything is imbued with that childhood mythology. Yeah. So I remember thinking, you know, there are places in my hometown that are significant to me, not for any other reason than that they played a significant role in the world of my own childhood. And when you're a kid, everything, you're experiencing everything for the first time. So everything takes on these mythic proportions. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to capture that idea that children almost make their own mythology. Uh, Stephen King, I've stumbled across a quote actually in The Body, uh, which Stand By Me is based uh, on. By me, yeah. um, uh, he said something, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of there's 
a very thin membrane between the rational man costume and the Gorgon myths of childhood. And I feel like that's a really good way to express what I, what I was interested in trying to express with Lost Creek. Um, and then once Dan and I started talking about the treatment we start, and started getting involved, we started thinking about well, what are some of the visual ways that we can express that. So I'd say a huge um, visual influence on the film for us was the photography of Gregory Crudson, yeah. Who's, yeah. who's an art photographer and um, takes these really interesting, uh, they're very staged. They, yeah. they look, they do, they're not naturalistic at all. He stages them almost to the level of like a film production. Oh, um, oh, like such rain machines. Of level. You know, yeah, it's a huge crew that goes in, and yeah. often they're these massive vistas of these very dilapidated New England towns. And if you look closely, something real strange is happening on the inside of the photo. Somebody, yeah. you know, standing naked outside of a trailer, or appears to be bearing a body, maybe or maybe not, or something. You know, so this idea of melancholy and beauty mixed mm -hmm. together. Um, and then from there, so we ended up with all, with this treatment. Um, I ended up, uh, I was, one of the reasons that I moved out of New York, I ended up getting uh, cast into a theater company. This is still when I was kind of still doing a little bit of acting in Baltimore. And through that one company, weirdly, I ended up getting in touch with um, a great cinematographer. His name is Kevin Eichenberg. Uh, he now, he, he works now mostly, he does uh, music videos. Um, he's worked with like Questlove and people like that. He, he has got a company called 410 Media. But at the time he was also starting out and he, he had just kind of gotten out of film school and um, he and I became friends and I pitched him the idea. And cause I felt like at that point I, I had been working as a playwright for a while. And I thought, well, I can do scripts and I can direct but what I can't, the one thing I don't know very much about is cameras at this point, right? So I felt like if I can find a good cinematographer, this could actually happen. And so when I met Kevin, that was kind of the, the trigger to, to be like, all right, well, Kevin's on board. We pitched him the idea, sent him the treatment. He really liked it. And then I was like, okay, well, then we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to figure this out. Um, um, <laughs> what I'll say is that uh, the sort of... Um, the coming together of the movie and what it would be um, doing in these early stages when we were talking is that horror as a genre, um, among many other things, is also a very interesting springboard to talk about other things. So, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the idea of, of talking about uh, making a coming of age story, essentially, but a horror movie, you know, that, that's very, especially in the 21st century. With horror these days, it kind of has to be more than just a horror film. Otherwise, yeah. a lot of people deem it as a failure. So that seemed really, really interesting to me. And that was when, you know, I remember Colin telling me that he wanted to make this story um, about childhood and about moving out of childhood and, and those things. I was like, okay, yeah, you know, whatever. And I remember him saying, it's a horror film. And that was what really, really grabbed my interest. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I, I think Dan's right, more and more uh, horror has proved itself as an area where that, that is possible. It's, it's, a, it's a way to tell fable in an interesting way. If you think about it, it is kind of like fable. You know, it's, it's a story that tells a different story while it's going on. That's a fable. And, and horror has always been a medium that's good at that. Uh, and it's also a good medium to start out in because it's cheap. Um, it's, it's easy to make horror films, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, you're able to achieve more with less in 
the horror genre than in other genres would be what I would, I would say. You can, uh, horror is used to unknown actors. So if you're making a rom-com, rom-coms, you know, they, they exist on the power of their A-list stars. You can't start out with rom-com. If you're making an action film, you have to have millions of dollars, right? So horror, horror is used to unknown actors. It's used to starting out directors. It's used to these kinds of more interesting stories. And there's this legacy of, of being, of improvising and, and creating creative workarounds when you can't afford to do it on a big budget. So it felt, from a production standpoint as well, it felt like a good fit. It felt like this is, this is a way to, to do this and a way to make this possible. Um, yeah, so once we met Kevin, we accumulated a crew. Um, I had found, I, you know, I'd stalked these kids, so I found them. And uh, they agreed, like, you know, I approached their parents. They, the parents agreed. Um, we filmed wherever we could. Um, you know, we've, we got permits where we could. We were filmed on private uh, property where we could to save money. Um, and uh, I would say I have to really... Um, shout out uh kevin he was able to you know we we didn't stint on on camera because we knew this the quality of the picture was also going to sell this film to us as far as we could quality of the story and quality of the picture and quality of the actors was going to was going to be what sold this as, as much as we could and i think kevin really worked to make he was a he was a really he was a wonderful dp and uh he was excellent to work with and he really uh he really understood what we were going for and he really understood that that feeling of we got to make this work and we've got to make it as beautiful as we can, considering we only have 30 grand. Both Lost Creek and then your uh, screenplay, God's Acre, uh, not only deal with, with sort of areas of, of the horrific, but it's also very much another, you know, it's, it's a look into the small communities or small town Americana and things like that. You've both had, you know, deep personal experiences of small communities. Um, is there is there something intrinsically horrific about what lurks beneath small town life? Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, so there's uh, big cities, big towns. There's an anon like an anonymity there. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you disappeared in those places, in small towns and in villages, you, that option isn't there unless, you know, the only way you can disappear in a small town is to physically actually disappear. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's definitely something intrinsically um, uncanny, I think, about um, choosing Good to word. in a small pocket um, with a, a limited amount of people. I think that there's something those places shape you and whether you want them to or not and whether mm -hmm. the shape fits or not. And um, I think there's something definitely intrinsically kind of, I don't know, lurking around those places and those lives. I mean, it's, it's, it's always interested me. Be also the idea of the sense of isolation. Um, you know, they, they can feel isolated, they can feel kind of cut off in, in their, their own kind of strange world. Um, but I think Dan's right. I think there's also this, and then other people have explored this idea, but I think they, they explore it because it's true to a certain extent. There is this feeling of, of not artificiality, but you expect a small town to be wholesome or happy 
and they aren't. Um, and there, so it almost feels like that, that same kind of uncanny feeling, as Dan said, that you get like going to Disney World, where you know, there's this veneer of happiness that, that is masking all sorts of strange stuff underneath. They feel like, and it's hard to articulate, but they feel like a place where almost anything could happen, both good and weird and bad. You know what I mean? In ways that aren't the same as, as a big city, where you expect kind of anything to happen. Also, though, I will say that, I mean, as you, you t we're talking about two um, projects here that were, I mean, Lost Creek especially, because we knew that that was going to have to be produced and funded by ourselves more than, you know, as well as, you know, um, crowdfunding and, and things like that. But when we wrote God's Acre, um, or when we first were coming around to God's Acre, that was very much, a, a, again, kind of a practical decision that we realized that we might have to do this again like when when lost creek was made and when we were were you know in festivals and when we were talking about you know deals for um distribution one of the, i think our secret weapon was that we never took that experience for granted and we always throughout every single day of that experience we were always entirely aware that you know most films don't get made. Films that do get made, most of those never make it anyway. They never make it to festivals. The ones that get to festivals, most of them don't win and don't get any traction. The ones that do win and do get traction might never get distributed. The ones that do get distributed, you, you might never get a career out of it. You still might never be asked to do anything again. And we were so acutely aware of those odds that when it came to writing our next film, we specifically said like we we need to write something that if we have to do this all again that we can you know all right it would be with a bigger budget we would try and raise a big bigger budget but we were always aware that getting lost creek out there and selling it to 10 territories didn't necessarily mean shit you know we we were always fully aware of that so there was definitely Yes, I think we are drawn um, to that sort of story in a sense that you're describing, Paddy. But there was also a practical element, I think, to to write it. To the fact that these two films have, have been the ones that have have kind of sprung board a, a career. We have other work that you know is a lot more sort of uh, grand and sweeping in scale. It just happens that the, these two have been the ones that have got the most attention, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's true as well. Colin, you also have written quite a bit for, for live performance on stage and have been nominated for a Schwartz Prize for Excellence in the Humanities for your uh, trilogy of historical plays set in and around US Civil War. How easy is it to effectively confront the US with its own history? That's a really interesting question. And uh, it's a question that is obviously hugely in the news right now um and i think it that would it one of the interesting things that happened when i was writing those plays was obviously i spent several years doing a lot of research and talking to historians and spent a lot of time in historical libraries and one of the things that i found is that it it's it's really kind of crazy the civil war is not dead for america it's not history it's it's something that people still get hugely emotional about and it's because we haven't really 
we haven't put to bed any of those issues in any real way at all. We, we've, America is very good at just glossing over things. You know, there's that American exceptionalism that just says, well, don't, don't worry about it. That was the past. We're going to move on. Now things are great. And people don't want to talk about the, and don't really want to address things that, that have happened in the past. I think one of the things that, that became important, and so that was, and actually that was an issue for me writing. So I grew up in what is more or less the North, if you're talking about like American divides during the Civil War. And a Civil War education in the North is very different than a Civil War education in the South. Um, in some places, they still call it the War of Northern Aggression down there. And um, even if they don't, the, the perspective of the South is super different. So one of the problems that I faced when I was first writing was my Northern education and my feeling of, all right, well, the feeling you get up North is, well, the South was bad, the North was good, we freed the slaves, hooray. And in order to write a compelling play that featured Southern soldiers and Southern people, they have to be human. And I think they aren't to a lot of people in the North in a, lot, in a, in a big way. You just kind of think, how could these people be so crazy? How could they fight so hard for this, for, for owning other humans? And you, you kind of, and so that it becomes almost impossible to write those people because they don't seem like real people at all. They seem like cartoons. Yeah. So the yeah. process of trying to understand the South and trying to understand where the South is coming from was a hugely, was difficult and an educational moment for me while I was writing those plays. Um, in the end, I think what I was trying to look at was just how how these things were devastating from so many different angles, from the angle of being an African-American and having that legacy, from uh, being a Southerner. And, and what you find is there's nuance. And, and I'm the last person to apologize for the South. In fact, I, my, my opinion is it doesn't matter how many, the only thing that I can say for the South is that they were devastated in the North wasn't. That's the only thing that I can really say. I don't really think there was any here, it's hard to say, but I don't think there's any heroism in the South. And the reason I say that is because no matter what they, what acts of heroism happened during the war, they were fighting for the right to own other human beings and buy them and sell them and destroy them at will. So no matter what they did, that was the truth. But not just any other human beings, a, a specific, a specific, sure. you know. But, but just that, but you, that's what it boils down to is Yes, it was racism, and yes, it would, they dehumanized black people, yeah. but bla those black people were humans, and they were being bought and sold and destroyed at will by a group of people who were fighting and willing to kill and die to maintain that right. And that, to me, is the truth about the South. But that being said, the South experienced a level of devastation that the North never did, and there's some tragedy there as well. So it was an interesting process writing them, but yes, I think you, what it, what it did to me, actually, what I will say is what it did to me, to kind of circle back to your question, is it helped me personally become very clear on my standpoints as far as racism in America goes and why certain things are important not to say, what, for example, all lives matter, why certain things are important yeah. to say, 
So anytime that... Don't any, talk to me about those all lives matter dickheads. Well, and, and, and why that's important. Because most people think, there's a lot of people out there, well-meaning people who don't understand why that's so, so damaging. And also, it, having spent a lot of time in that history, it became incredibly clear to me that, you know, there are certain things you do have to say. You have to stand up for that truth. And so one thing that you hear a lot in America from some people is, well, the Civil War wasn't just about slavery. That's absolutely untrue. It was. It, that was all it was about. It was, you, and I'm not just talking about from an ideological standpoint. I'm talking the architects of the Confederacy said it. They wrote it. And so when people say that, it's racist. What they're saying is, I want to somehow apologize for these people. And I want to somehow diminish the suffering of African Americans by saying that that's not, that's not really what that was about. So that, it was an interesting experience because you're right, confronting history, confronting history, making other people confront history, but also confronting the history myself, I would say, was, was what was a very interesting experience. About those and um, Dan, because it would not be fair for you not to have your own question too. Oh, how kind. <laughs> <laughs> um, is my question just, what are you having for dinner tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Dad, where did you get that lovely laminate floor? Uh, <laughs> well, it isn't mine because I live in my friend's, like, garage. <laughs> please, please don't ask that question. <laughs> Dan, your work uh, extends beyond authorship for performance, and, and you have in the past been shortlisted for the, the Bridport Prize for short fiction. What does writing for reading give you that writing for viewing doesn't? Oh, um, my, my own voice, I would say, and um, more, more purity. Um, you know, there's, uh, when, when you write a movie, if you're lucky enough to get that movie made, maybe 50% of, 50 to 70% of what you've actually written will make it onto the screen. Um, when you write fiction or short fiction, um, there's, for better or worse, there's an almost unfiltered, editing was obviously important, but there's an almost unfiltered sort of message that you can get through. Um, short fiction in particular, you're like, I never, um, I never really thought I was ever going to, after I wrote that, wonderful first novel um, in my teens. Um, I, I moved into screenwriting and I never really thought that I would look back, but I actually did my master's um, when I was 30. I think I started my master's, so quite late um, in life. And I still, you know, I was naive, I was ignorant. I was arrogant, I was arrogant because I had lost Creek under my belt and I thought I want to get there and I want to learn more about screenwriting. And I had a marvelous tutor um, Rhoda Greaves, who is a fucking outstanding writer. Her short fiction is a dream. You read it and it, it fucking bounces off the page. And, and she, like we were talking about earlier with this sort of uncanny sort of world, Rhoda's work has this unbelievable... Um, fixed location which is almost like just two doors down from reality it's like it's kind of is in our world but it could knock on our door anytime you know um and 
her as a tutor and then as a friend and her work and some of the things that um, she pushed me onto uh, really sparked something in me. And um, I remember sitting down with her with my work and I was like, I don't really know if I'm actually doing the right thing here, but I feel like I've got something. And she sat down with me and she said, you, this, is, this is good. Like this is, don't feel like you're an imposter in this world. And that gave me a massive amount of confidence, um, a massive, massive amount of confidence. And um, I still do feel like I kind of um, was just a visitor in that world. Um, ideas for short fiction, you know, they have different principles to long form fiction and screenwriting and, you know, playwriting and, and, and that. Um, there are different principles, but ideas for short fiction don't, don't come to me like um, they do for screenwriting. So when I do get an idea for, for a, a film or, a, you know, something like that, something scripted, I tend to kind of push them away because I always think... If if they stick around, they're worth writing down. But with short fiction ideas, I fucking I run for the nearest thing I can, you know, type on just so I can scribble down. And they're not even illegible sentences half the time. But seeing those messes of sentences come together to be something. And another fantastic thing about short fiction is that you could think you finished it, but the, uh, the the reality is with short fiction that until it's published, it really isn't finished, and it might not even be then. Um, so a whole story can change in the editing of it, and you know, even I've been—I mean, this is probably um, an indicator of my lack of real experience or longevity in the form of short fiction. But you know, I've surprised myself when I've been editing work that I haven't looked at for a couple of weeks, and I've been like. I, that's what I'm saying. That's that's the main thing I'm saying here. Not this other shit that I spend too much time sort of prodding. It's the it's this little half sentence here. That's that's the story, you know. That the idea that I can surprise myself and entertain myself in a way that I can, you know, that is the goal to um, surprise and entertain others. Um, I get that from short fiction and also it's short it's short fiction you know it is actually is fucking short so um you can realistically speaking you know you unless you're um in some sort of fever dream the likelihood of you finishing a screenplay that's ready to actually be read in a week is slim with short fiction you know that likelihood is very possible you can have something like that in that week and that that amazing feeling you get when you finish a screenplay this um you know 120 pages you can get smaller, you know, feelings like that once a week if, you, if you're knocking out pieces of short fiction all the time. I think I was just very, very incredibly lucky um, that I was shortlisted for such an award so early on in my short fiction sort of career. I think that was luck more than anything. With screenwriting, I feel like you work really hard to get your results. But with short fiction, my experience has been you know, um, the right idea can just happen to spark the right story, which can happen to hit the right people. And it's all a lot more kind of um, plausible in a, in a sense. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like as much of a slog. Um, that, I think that's 
what I get out of short fiction. You are both in the process of developing, uh, or are you both in the process of developing this comedy drama feature in Wales, up in Wales? Is that both of you, or is that just you, Dan? Or is that... Jen's got yes. the lead on that. Um, I mean, yeah, we, I mean, Colin's obviously a writer on it, but um, like uh, Colin is in America, so he is not able, unfortunately, to like attend those meetings and uh, readings and things like that. So. But uh, so you, you both have a, a form of stake in various different ways. Um, developing a comedy drama feature set in Wales should be under um, the twice after winning director Michael B. Clifford, which you're actively seeking producers. Is that something you can tell us about? And should there be any either creatively active or just purely financially inclined backers watching? Mm. Who should should they be talking to? Uh, Well, I suppose myself, because I'm based in the UK and Colin is not. Um, Myself and the uh, uh, director attached are both based in the Midlands. Um, we are seeking producers. I mean, at first we looked in Wales and we were told by Film Cymru, no, essentially. They, you know, they, they, they just said, look, there aren't that many producers in Wales and they're all really busy. So, <laughs> um, like, don't feel like you have to try and get producers in Wales in order to get any sort of funding from, um, you know, Wales. Uh, we will, because we have a Welsh director attached, we will consider any kind of um, options. Um, what I can tell you about the movie is, um, you know, it's a, it's a comedy drama. It's a, it's a two-handed, essentially. There are a couple more characters as well, but um, it's about home. This all started because I was having dinner with my cousin in Cardiff, and... Um, she told me this story. She had gone to the doctors that week and um, she, she said, you'll never fucking guess what he asked me, Dan. And I went, oh, what, what did he ask me? She goes, he asked me if I'm stressed. Who the fuck do you know isn't stressed? Like, is he stressed? I was like, did you ask him if he was stressed? She went, yeah. I went, well, what did he say? He went, yeah. <laughs> and after we had lunch, I went for a walk around Butte Park in Cardiff and I was talking to Colin um, on WhatsApp and I was saying, yeah, I really want to write this um, film. I want to I, I write a film about home and about the, you know, the stuff we just discussed, all the shit that gets stirred up and all the um, resent and, and the fact that, you know, some people, myself included, kind of have to battle with myself and everyone has to bite their tongue when they visit family at home. And um, so we came up with this idea of uh, two estranged cousins that inherit their aunt's house after she has passed away. And they have to spend a week there together, um, clearing out the house so they can sell it. Um, and they are estranged for a reason. These are just two people who just don't fucking get on and they shouldn't really be friends, you know. Um, but I sent the script to Michael. Um, Michael had directed a short film of mine, which was used for some uh, actors that were studying um, their drama degrees at BCU. I think it's called the Birmingham Conservatoire now. Um, so we met through that. Michael was uh, mostly focused on documentaries. And then he called me out of the blue. I didn't even know that he had my number. I don't know my number from. Um, but he called me out of the blue and said, I want to go back into drama. Do you have any stuff? And I sent him a load of shit. And 
um, Heads of the Valleys, which is this uh, movie, was the one that he really, really liked. So, um, yeah, we're trying to get a, I think a lot of things attract him about it. It's a micro-budget film. Again, it really wouldn't cost a lot. I've had a small um, production company in South Wales give me a rough budget. Uh, you know, it's well under 100 grand. Um, and uh, Michael and uh, one of his producing partners um, are really into eco-filmmaking, you know, a sort of zero carbon emissions. And uh, we think that this is a movie that can achieve that. So, um, you know, it, it, it's it, small budget. It's... Michael describes it as uh, low on resources and high on wit. And I'll, you know what, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> that's a, from someone who's won two BAFTAs, if he wants to say that about a script I wrote, then that's fucking fine by me. <laughs> like, I'm not going to correct him. <laughs> how, how has this weird pandemic period affected both of you? Oh, uh, how deep do you want me to go? <laughs> as you like, really. Oh, um, fairly superficial interviews so far. It'd be nice to have something. Oh, Christ. I've, do you know what? Right? I've, I've learned a fair amount about myself. So, like, I can cook now. So, that's, that's, that's the shallow end um, of this. Um, I, in January, I, I had an offer accepted for a flat. And then I was, and that process took four months, uh, three, four months. And then, just as things were ending or coming to a close with the deal going through, um, I was called, along with my colleagues, I was called into my office and told, um, goodbye, this is your last day. And then 20 minutes later, the estate agent called and said, when do you want to pick up the keys? <laughs> uh, I said, I'm going to call you back. And uh, didn't. Um, I didn't for a few days. And then I thought, I you know what, I don't know if I could get a phone call tomorrow saying come back to work or I could not get a phone call for six months. And, and just so, to be just to be clear for people watching this, this is a completely this is a job outside of Yes, this is my day job. This is what pays um, my bills. Um, so I just thought, look, I've got to come clean and everyone was, you know, I was given advice saying you can ask for a mortgage holiday. So I uh, emailed my broker and said, look, can I ask for a mortgage holiday? And he was like, no, because <laughs> you don't have the mortgage yet. So No, no, offer, no. Yeah, so the offer's just been taken off the table. So I kind of just accepted it. I, you know, I had a few days where I was real down about it. Um, but on Sunday, I just started looking again. Uh, long story short, it looks like I'm going through the process again of trying to buy the same flat. I'm when I'm not at, uh, when I'm not doing when I'm not writing. Uh, I'm a teacher. I teach writing, and it's been a nightmare. Um, you know, obviously, <laughs> all the schools got shut down, uh, and the last three months of school were totally online, and that was a nightmare, and I hated it. Um, but we're done for the summer, so that's great. Mm. Um, and I think the same thing is Dan. It's I think personally. Um, I'm somebody who doesn't love to spend every minute in the house, so that's been a little bit trying um, on the old mental health. Um, but um, also, we've just started, from a professional standpoint, not that there, we, there's a lot to say about this because nobody knows, but we've started getting a lot of emails from our director and from uh, the producer and our uh, agent about COVID-friendly work and what that means. Uh, so that's also like a whole other thing that 
not just us, but pretty much anybody who oh, does wow. film is going to have to tackle. And the problem is nobody knows right now. You know, nobody knows what will be better. So some people are saying like, oh yeah, make sure that it's like, you know, minimal cast all, all indoors. And then somebody else is like, no, 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 minimal cast, everything outdoors. Or, you know, can, can people fight anymore? Can, uh, can you write things with makeup effects in it be, anymore? Because it's going to be difficult to do, you know, to put facial appliances on, on people with COVID. What about intimate scenes? Are you going to, is anybody going to be able to write those anymore? Or is that going to be too difficult to film nowadays? So that like, and you know, we've thought about it with, with God's Acre because that's one that's in the pipeline right now. And luckily most of, for well, better or for worse, most of it is outdoors. Um, and the cast isn't huge. Um, and you know, most, most scenes don't have that many people in it at one time. Uh, so we're hoping, and we just sent it off and we're waiting for some producer's notes uh, back on the script. And we both imagine that a lot of the notes that we're going to be getting this round are going to be about that, are going to be about ways to adjust the script for COVID. Possibly. Um, we, we work in an industry, all of us, where um, incredibly rich people have to spend um, large amounts of time working alongside a lot of working class people. Um, so, you know, we, it's something we have to be incredibly careful of, um, and probably will have to be, um, for, you know, a couple of years to come now. But I also, yeah. like, I, like, I just, I, like, I did have a moment of clarity while Colin was talking, despite the issues I've had during this lockdown, I also recognize that I am incredibly lucky in comparison to Oh, yeah. And a lot of the shit that's going on in the world right now, COVID or otherwise, you know. So, um, yeah, like my situation isn't great, but um, a lot of people have it a lot worse. Absolutely. Oh God, like yeah, I don't really let myself get too down about it because I just, you know, I, I do always get to that stage where I just think, do you know what, Dan, just get over yourself. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a bit shit, but it's shit for everyone, and it, you know, and it's when you have a different. <laughs> We're all in this shit together. <laughs> exactly, and some people are up to it, in, you know, up to their necks in it. So I yeah. Mean, what would you both like to see emerge from this oh, pandemic what, here, in terms of creative industries? Here's what I would love to see. I would love to see more independent film, more yes. independent voices, and more diverse yes. voices. Um, yes. That's what I would love to see. I think, you know, I would like to see smaller movies, smaller stories, the kind of things that you don't usually see on the big screen, the kind of stuff that you have to seek out um and you know buy on dvd from different countries because you know your nearest independent cinema might be uh, an hour or two's drive away That's and the, if I, it I even gets see. into cinemas even if, if it does get a theatrical release exactly i want to see that stuff now be common thing and especially when you look at the parasite effect you know yeah. I, I think there's there's really no reason now that we can't be putting instead of having you know, five showings a day, seven nights a week of, um, you know, a fucking Marvel movie. I love the Marvel movies, but I, you know, I would love to be able to go into my local big cinema and say, I'm going to watch this Brazilian three hour long drama on a whim. Like, maybe I haven't given you the best example of the kind of, but that is the kind of movie that I would, you know, I, that I seek out. That's what I want to see. But I fear that instead we're going to see big studios just coming up with more creative ways to throw money at the screen. 
Um, it's true. I, I heard that people, in, rather than, and this, this is kind of appalled me, one of these articles that uh, the director that we're working with sent to us, mm. uh, which is just breaking down things that are happening and the ways that, that uh, the film industry is trying to react to COVID. Uh, they're talking. I think this is a television show. I can't remember which one, but they were saying, "Oh, well, you know, this scene that they're going to film now—it's a birthday scene, like a child's birthday scene. Normally, this would be filled with extras, but instead, all of it's going to be CGI'd. Idiot. Or write a different film. Write a yeah. film that doesn't have a birthday scene in it. You know, write write something more interesting. And I'm I'm in entirely in agreement with uh, with Dan here. I think. At the very least, even if this, the, that, you know, even if it didn't get to, into cinemas, that it would get made and distributed in a manner that it was more widely available to people. Yeah, um, yeah. I know that part of that is is advertising, and but I would like that to be more money to be sunk into that. So that yeah. these yeah. these small films that are so interesting and so creative and influential could could at least people could be made aware of them in a way that they just aren't right now. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and I think as well, I mean, CGI overused is nothing new. I mean, I, I, I remember yeah. seeing uh, a movie recently where someone upended a table and, uh, you know, a fucking apple on the table was CGI. Um, you know, it's, it's not necessary. We're used to seeing crowds and individuals now that are CGI. And the thing is that, you know, when you look at what uh, the recent Planet of the Apes um, trilogy has done with uh, companies like Weta, you know, they're photo real now. They are indistinguishable from real life. And I think money will only go further towards that before it goes to reaching out to the storytellers and trying to find more, um, you know, diverse stories from diverse voices, which is what we need, uh, frankly. Yeah, I agree. I hope that there's a little bit of that at least though. I, you know, I, you do start to hear these calls from producers and managers and, and mm. people like for COVID friendly scripts. And it is a, if anything, if we're looking for a silver lining, it is a good moment to be creative as a writer, to, to yeah. think about, well, how can I tell a story that I actually want to tell that within these, within these tight parameters. And I think that that at least is an interesting creative challenge. One of the casualties of 2020 has been James Lipton, founder inside the Actors Studio, um, who would finish with uh, asking 10 rapid-fire questions to his subject, uh, questions which he had stolen from elsewhere, so we feel no qualms about stealing them from him. Um, I don't know which order both of you wanted to, but these, these questions will go to both of you, so uh, okay. you can fight it out amongst yourselves. We'll just shout each other down. <laughs> well, um, let's not do that. Um, <laughs> um, Colin, you can go first. Okay. Well, I think if, we, if Colin goes first, then his answer will be short. So it's rapid. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And if I, but if I can't think of something fast enough, I'm turning it over to you, Dan. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna jump in. <laughs> What's your favorite word? Mm. Dan, you go first. Cunt. I wish I had taken that one. And what? And what was the question? Sorry. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, I don't. I don't have one. I guess I don't think I have a favorite word either. They they jump back and forth, don't they? That's the problem. You hear a word and you're like, "That's fabulous." Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm gonna say cunt. I'm gonna stick with cunt. I'm gonna double down as cunt. All right. I'll go with vagina. <laughs> Classier version. <laughs> What's your least favorite word? Mm. Oh, least favorite word. Stoked. 
I hate it when people are like, I'm so stoked. Or synergy, that is another word I hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, morsel. Ooh, that's one, that one's terrible as well. Hideous, yeah. What turns you on? Answer how you like. Oh. Um, I guess gay porn. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, fi- finishing a piece of work, man. Finishing a fucking yeah. piece of work is a fucking great feeling. It's no, a better feeling than watching you work. Because yeah. when, you, when I, you know, I haven't watched Lost Creek in years because I fear that I would Me just either. Apart. But finishing a piece of work is fucking amazing. I would agree. I actually would agree with that one. And what turns you off? Oh, the hashtag I'm writing. Oh, yeah. Or hashtag writer's life. Um, what sound or noise do you love? Oh, um, like ice in a glass. Like a, oh, like that's a, gin, a, like that's a, a good one. Ton- like just, you know, you know, like a casual gin and fucking tonic. Yeah. Really yeah. Like that. That's summer to me. Mm. Yeah, I like, <laughs> I, I like thunder. I like thunderstorms. I, I yes. love thunderstorms. I love the sound of thunder. Yeah, I love it. I love the sound of thunder. Yeah, yeah that's, that's how I go to sleep on a nightly basis now without mm. playing. Um, what sound or noise do you hate? I hate it when uh, somebody gets their fingernail caught in like fabric and you can hear it like go like across the fabric. I hate that. Makes me feel um, sick. I never ever want to be aware of someone chewing next to me. Chewing? Yeah. Chewing. Wet mouth sounds? Other people chewing. Uh-huh. Now, we can go back and retag the first one if this doesn't if this one doesn't work for you. But I I just you were so happy about it, I didn't want to say. Question seven was what is your favorite swear word? Uh, well I guess I have already <laughs> this question, so this is your call. I, I think it's fuck because it can be used in so many different ways. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It, any, there's so many any, iterations of it and ways that you can use it creatively. Any that's affrictive, you know, any that any that's affrictive for me. Yeah, um, they, they work better than the others. Though. I heard somebody call somebody else a fucko the other day, and it made <laughs> me laugh. It just doesn't. Yeah. Like, watch out, fucko! It's like, oh, oh right. <laughs> I mean, that's not on the same level as when grown adults call dogs doggo, but because <laughs> that is reprehensible and repulsive. <laughs> my I, mother asked me about that only today. She, uh, we were really? just like an apropos of nothing. Right. She turned to me and said, have you come across these people that use the words doggo and it's, upper? And I said, yes, yes, I have. She went, that must not be allowed. No, no. It's, so, it's so important to me that this section gets kept. Because people <laughs> yes. need to know that it is not cute. It is grotesque. It, I used to date a girl that, that did that. And I would say that is one of the things that broke us up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't. I'm not really not kidding, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know who you mean, and I know. <laughs> What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I have always been interested in carpentry and woodworking, and I might like to do that. Oh, that's a good one. 
I don't know if, if I could make a living doing that. So relaxing. Give a little whittle. Yeah. He, he probably does, actually. He's quite handy, Colin is. Yeah, um, I actually, I've started, that's one of my corona things. I started doing a lot more woodworking than I uh, normally do. I would say, now I don't know if this counts because it is technically writing. Um, I guess it's more performative writing, but I, uh, I've always kind of fancied doing stand-up comedy. Oh, right. Although um, I'm kind of turned off by that now because it's come to light how toxic that environment is, especially for women. So I'm kind of a bit like oh, about that now. It kind of feels a bit gross. But um, yeah, stand-up comedy is always, it's always storytelling for me. It doesn't matter if the medium is used. What profession would you absolutely not want to do? Oh, teaching. Mm. <laughs> Health and safety. <laughs> awesome. uh, I, I, I don't I don't like children <laughs> um, I, I'm sorry Fair enough. Wanna, yeah I don't like them I, I, I don't want to I don't want to teach kids I don't want to be a construction worker because the people that like work on roads so oh, I, I drive past them in the summer I just think how are you alive how are you not dead yeah, on the ground on, I, I'm with you there yeah totally fuck that and finally, if uh, when when the time comes and you peg out, uh, if you should discover, you know, if you should discover, find yourself opening your eyes and discovering that heaven actually does exist, what do you want to hear said to you on arrival? Huh. You can drink as much as you want here. <laughs> like there, there's no body to fuck up so you can just drink and drink and drink and you might have to because some of the people <laughs> some of the people here are intolerable <laughs> <laughs> see i would want it to be uh, that mine was going to be like oh you can find the registration forms over by abraham lincoln or something like that you know what i mean you're like oh i get to meet all these weird people who have, who have died yeah i mean you, you would love that wouldn't you yeah you would, you would love that to meet old honest Abe. <laughs> um, that's such a you know that's such a good question yeah because i don't even think i'd hear it because i'd still i'd be like what the fuck is going on so it wouldn't matter what the guy is saying <laughs> what's happening I, i'll tell like, you what i wouldn't like to hear is um oh he died he has to start over again now <laughs> like, on this planet oh yeah. no no thank you <laughs> no no Maybe like, maybe like, oh, you're just in time to see it all explode. Like, oh, oh that's good. I, like, that would be good. Like, oh, I've got your seat here. Like, yeah. oh, you've got a good view, Mr. Witherall. Like, which, <laughs> which country would you like to see melt first? Or would you like a panoramic <laughs> view of it all just imploding? Like, which do you choose? Mm. <laughs> that would be pretty fucking cool. <laughs> Elisa from Sussex asks, do either of you have any sense of what the ideal project would be for you? Hmm. That's a fucking great question. That's a really, yeah, that's a really good question. And I think I, I can at least say to start, it, it's hard to answer because every, I'll say this, in terms of a project because every every project that we start feels like you know you get excited about it and that's the one that you want to work on and that's the one that you're like your your mind starts revving towards an ideal project would be one where there's simpatico between kind of everybody involved so it doesn't mean that they're going to accept your first draft of the script 
I don't mind editing and I don't mind improving the work, but everybody involved, you get the sense that everybody involved is like on board and they understand what you're trying to do and they're going to make it like, they're going to make it happen. So to me, I have got a, like a couple of answers. Like the, we've already written one that I, I think is our best work. Um, that was our second script to make it onto the blacklist. Um, the, the, that in particular, I won't talk about it here, but um, that in particular, I think is, um, is great script. Is, yeah, it's definitely our, our best um, work so far. But also, um, I want to direct. So I, I, we don't. When you work in independent film, you get told really, really quickly that um, it is not a place for writers. Like you, kind of, if you want to see these films get made, you kind of have to direct it yourself. I was planning actually on attending. Um, a course that would sort of take me into that along um, it was run by Michael actually um, before this uh, pandemic so that's probably going to be moved back to next year now um, that I think to move into not only not just directing but um, something more practical stuff you know um, something that doesn't sort of leave you in the dust as soon as the script is packaged and moved on you know um, yeah I'd agree that for me I think uh, I don't really want to put a cap on our ambition so it's, I think it's, it's too good a question for me to answer correctly now because we're um, kind of so early in our in our career. So, uh, Glenn and Cratchand asks, what would be your topmost bit of advice to an emerging screenwriter trying to get their work seen by the right people? By the right people? Competition. So, I would I would say um, the there's a couple of things that are really important to do. Number one, I feel like um, continuously writing, which is something that you hear all the time and it sounds like a cop-out answer, but I do think it's true because every time you write, you get better. Um, so the, uh, I mean, I'm going to let you finish, Colin, but that is something I disagree with, personally. Really? Yeah, because I just don't think it's practical and I, I, there's something I really I don't mean, I don't mean, what I, do, what I mean is don't expect the first thing that you write to be the thing that's oh, going to get you started. That, that I agree with, definitely. So, so don't, so if you are disheartened, if you, for example, if you send out a script for solicitation, a spec script to 100 different agents and nobody gets back to you. It was, if it was the first thing that you wrote, you're, yeah. the next one's gonna be better. The next one's gonna be better. Um, I would say also go um, keep your ears open. Don't, don't take any one path alone. Mm -hmm. So um, don't, and don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So in other words, uh, don't imagine that the, the first three agents that you're going to send something out to are going to be the agents that you get signed with. Also, look at screenplay competitions. Uh, so that's how we ended up with our agent. Um, we were in a screenplay competition. We did not win the competition, but we got signed out of the competition uh, because there are agents involved in the competition. That's not going to work for everybody, though. So look for other opportunities that, that you can, but do them all. Do them all continue, do them all continuously because it, you really never know what is going to be the thing that pushes you over the edge. Yeah. Um, it yeah. could be a friend. You know, it, some people are lucky that way. Some people know a person who knows a person who knows a person, and they're signed with an agent, and they and they say, you know what, we've been friends for years. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this script to my agent. He's in. He's looking for new people right now. That might be the way that you do it. But you, you, I, go ahead. Um, I was. I would say, um, work with like-minded people and make sure that you insert yourself around like-minded people who are positive. Yes. 
because you are going to hear countless times from people negative stuff. You're going to hear that's stuff so that's true. Good enough, yet you can't do it. Don't, don't fucking listen. Or to no, it. What, the one that I hate. On. The on. one that I hate. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Dan, but the one that I hate is when screenwriters are like, "Barely anybody makes it." No, you know. Yeah, you yeah, know, buckle up. That's bullshit that. advice. Like, just ignore it yeah. and fucking carry on, because we all know it's true. We don't need to be told it. Um, also, and, but if, if, that, if that were true, nobody would be a screenwriter. You know I, what I mean? I detest when um, people sit in front of you, especially successful writers, and they say, just write every day. They don't know your situation. No. Like, they, don't, they don't know how, how your life is and how complicated yeah. your life is. Like, don't feel bad about yourself if you haven't written anything down for a few days or a week or a month. Don't feel oh, bad. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. But go, but go back to it. That's what I'd say. I yeah. would also say there's a lot to be said for seeking higher education honestly i became a much better writer when i did my master's massive amount i would agree so i also met a lot of people that have gotten me work and you know things like that through that um and lastly i would say competitions definitely yeah definitely. i think competitions are worth it competitions um it's it's a really good way to get your work in front of people and it's and i think that's one of the hardest things in the industry to do is get your work in front of people if you aren't if and, you don't and, if you're an unknown and look, a lot of these people who are reading your work, yeah, okay, they might be interns. Like, you know, um, they, they might not be the people who are necessarily judging it. But the, it, is, it is a really good and effective way of, of getting your work and getting feedback that is nine times out, no, not nine times out of 10, maybe like seven or eight times out of 10, legit. Like we've had some feedback from um, competition and agents that you know we've looked at and we thought you just didn't get it and that's fine that's no problem whatsoever um, but you know we've had feedback from the majority of the feedback we've had from agents and competitions has been fantastic even if it's just the no thanks you know it's, yeah. it's all been stuff that we've taken with us onto the next draft or the next project it's, it's absolutely all, you know so that's that's the stuff I would recommend in like a bullet point and finally, uh, Michelle and Bridge North asks, are there moments when you want to slaughter each other and how do you overcome that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Absolutely, <laughs> lords. Um, how do I overcome it? I feel like I tut loudly. <laughs> um, I think you know, some of our arguments, we're arguing for the same point. And I, I was... Um, it takes us like it takes us too long to realize that, but um, I think uh, with our process, it's, it's different to a lot of writers because we we have always lived on other ends of the planet. Yeah, when, when we've been doing this, so I think because of that, um, we've always had you know even if we're skyping or whatever and we and we're working, it's it's not our only form of work. So because we have different means of communication and different um, ways that we, we work, um, I think there's a lot of forgiveness there. And not just forgiving each other, but forgiving ourselves for, for um, things. Uh, and yeah, and just like... I would also say there's, also, there's always respect and that's important. Yeah. No, 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 even if I deeply disagree with something that Dan wants to do or say in, a, in something we're working on, it, I don't... It, I'm willing to be argued down mm. if he can prove me wrong. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm never approaching an argument thinking Dan's an idiot. 
he has no idea what he's talking about. He, there's, there's no way that that's going to work. I always think, I don't like this, but Dan could possibly prove me wrong. And, and if he does, fair enough, then, uh, then that's what we'll do. And I think it means that there's never an impasse. There's never a moment where the argument hits an impasse and we're just like, well, fuck you. There's also, there's also like, um, you know, if, if Colin came to me with an idea that I just fucking hated, and, you know, there probably has been a couple. Oh, we've done that to each other all the time. Yeah, there's always that sort of freedom of like, you know what, this, I'm not feeling this and I don't think I ever will. So if you want to continue with this, you can. And there's no, yeah. hard, feel there's no hard feelings with that, you know. As, no, long as, no. as, long as, as long as our work together doesn't suffer, then it is really no. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, and, I, and I will say, not always, but often, and it just helps strengthen that, that situation. Um, often, Dan, when I'll like, pitch an idea to Dan, and Dan will be like, I don't think so, Colin. And I will go and work on it on my own. I'll hit an impasse and feel like, yeah, no, Dan was right after all. Um, but I not, think, not always, but, but it happens enough that it, yeah. it means that you're willing to listen because you don't, I, I think the thing, I think one of the things that's great about working with a partner is you have such a sense of perspective that you don't have if you're working by yourself. Yeah. So if you're working by yourself, all you've got is yourself and you've got to believe in yourself in order to get stuff made. But it, it means that you have, you know, you could present something and have no idea that there are massive flaws in it because no one is sitting there telling you, what about this? And having that sense of perspective keeps you open to, to different ideas. And I, I value that. Oh, totally. Oh, oh. And, it, and it means that we're forced to trust each other because we're never, we're, we're physically never together. So, you know, the yeah. only times that we're actually physically like working on something together is when we're on Skype or if we're doing like WhatsApp voice notes. But, you know, a lot of the work that we do together, we have to do apart because we are apart. So we kind of have to trust that, you know, we have Google Docs that we can both see and, and, and put stuff on. Kind of have to trust that, you know, when I, when I say to Colin, like, oh, I put like a couple of pages on the Google Doc. You, you kind of have to just trust that it's going to be worth reading because you, you, yeah. you wouldn't get those two pages if you had to sit down and do it together all the time you just you just yeah. didn't get anything done so i think we're lucky in that sense is that we're sort of forced to trust each other in that way and yeah. um, that's that's a really positive thing i think yeah absolutely mm. on which note stand with all colin adams to me thank you very much indeed thank you absolutely thank you for having us thank you You've been listening to Dark Unicorn in Conversation with guests Dan John Witherall and Colin Adams Toomey. The show was written, presented, and edited by Paddy Cooper. Title music by Curtis Batson. Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton. The show was executive produced for Dark Unicorn Productions Limited by Eleanor Stoughton. COVID-19 presents one of the greatest threats to theatre in living memory. The performing arts need you now more than ever. Please, consider supporting our work by becoming a patron, with packages starting at just £50 per year to be a rainbow unicorn. Just visit darkunicorn.org. Science helps us solve problems, but creativity helps us cope with them. Please don't let the performing arts be another casualty of the pandemic. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 